Several years ago, many of you know, Susie and I vacated the suburbs and we moved out into the county. And I'd always wanted to do that, but at the time, the opportunity availed itself. So we moved out into the county. And now I consider myself sort of a hack farmer, a very small little micro farm and dabble in animal husbandry and whatnot, planting trees and these sorts of things. And when you're out in creation and you're, you're farming or you're, you're tending to the land, what, you, what happens is you tend to suddenly be, you're more aware of the patterns and the rhythms of behavior of animal life and weather patterns become more significant in your thinking. And I, I noticed that animals and nature is more predictable than I probably had observed when I was living in the city. So animals, for example, tend to pretty much wake up at the same time. They, they go to the same places. They, they eat and feed at the same time. Plants and animals come up in cycles in the spring. They grow at a certain rate. They die off or go into hibernation in the fall. Even, even weather has a predictability to it. So I lived in the city for 42, 43 years, and I never noticed that every time it rains, the next day or a few hours later, it's always windy, kind of like in the Noahic flood. There's rain, and then God sends the wind to, to dry up the rain, and it's predictable. And the, the wind almost always comes from the same direction. Solomon, in his observation of creation in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, made these same observations. You know, the wind blows from the north, returns to the south, round around it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, but the sea is never full. He's observing that the patterns, the, the rhythms, the predictability of creation. Now, we too are part of creation. We just don't necessarily seem on the surface to be as predictable as animals are or as plant life is. And that's partly because we've created so many different kinds of habitats within which we, we live. And we also have the power of will to, to determine the decisions that we make on a day-to-day -day basis. And so in that respect, our predictability, because of our variability, might be a little bit more masked. But when you study human nature, not just in the present, but throughout history, you, you just quickly are reminded that we too are very, very predictable creatures. Whether you're living in the first century in the Greco-Roman world within which Paul and Silas ministered, or you're living in Essex County in 2023, when you observe people's response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the claims of Jesus Christ, to God's high calling upon our lives, the responses are eerily similar to what was happening 2,000 years ago. See, because of sin, we are naturally opposed to the gospel and claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's something in our sinfulness that, that resents authority. We prefer autonomy, self-governance. When Jesus Christ claims to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords or calls us out on our sins or calls us to follow him, there's a, there's a natural tendency to, to resist that. And so Paul's declarations in Romans chapter three, especially in verses 10 and 11 are, 
are, are very accurate, not just in terms of the accuracy of the word of God, but they're, they're an accurate reflection of what we see in the world around us. Nobody seeks after God. Nobody understands. By nature, we are confused. We are chaotic thinkers, and we are opposed to the things of God. But God, by his grace, saves us and brings radical transformation into our lives. And, and we're here today in large part to worship him because of that grand reality. In Acts chapter 17, as Paul and Silas are continuing on their missionary journeys, it's interesting to note that their behavior and the behavior of those they preached to doesn't sound particularly different than many of the other cities they preached in. So when when we're studying the book of Acts, you might think, well, this sermon kind of sounds similar to one you preached a month ago or eight weeks ago, and it's probably true that many of the narratives in the book of Acts are in different places at different times. There's maybe a different preacher involved, but they're, they're very similar. The responses of people to the gospel become very similar in one city as they, they are in another city. Of course, there's some variations there. Sometimes you have more fruit. Sometimes you have less fruit. Sometimes you have more venom spewed at you. Sometimes you have more uh, interested listeners. So what I, I think I, w- I would like to do with our study today in Acts 17, verses 1 to 15, this is how I think this sermon is going to serve, serve us. The first thing that this sermon is going to do is it's going to help us to see patterns of human behavior, the predictable responses that we should see and probably expect and anticipate as we go about our ministry lives. And the second is there's, there's a few critical points of application in terms of how we can live better that I think will benefit from when we observe, especially the response of the Bereans when they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in many ways, Acts 17 repeats the patterns of behavior that Paul had already witnessed when he was down in Southern Galatia. Let me just rattle through them for you quickly, and then we'll get right into the text. The first thing he does is he, he's traveling about, which was pretty common for an evangelist. They're, they're going to key cities to try to preach. And he, he goes to the local synagogue. He always does that. He goes to the local synagogue because the Jews, while they came from what we know as Israel, had scattered throughout Asia Minor and even into Northern Africa, but that's not the setting within which the New Testament was written. It focuses more on, on, on Asia and Palestine, of course. And the Jews had settled and they'd established synagogues in these various Gentile cities. So he always goes first to the people with which he has a cultural connection. And because he knew that God came to the Jews first in, in, the, in the Sinai covenant, Mosaic covenant, Abrahamic covenant. Secondly, he debates and presents Christ. He always takes advantage of the opportunity to preach a sermon or two. Third, all sorts of people believe Fourth, all sorts of people throw a fit. So we have believers and we have those that hate his guts. And there's a dramatic contrast between the two. Fifth, Christians then are persecuted or he's run out of town or the the evangelists are attacked and they often are even attacked in their own homes. Six, Christians receive threats of violence or financial penalties or false rumors are spread about them. And brothers and sisters, this pattern in Acts, this, these events in Acts 17 are reflected throughout the history of the Christian church. The same stuff has happened time and time and time again 
repackaged in different cultures to different degrees. I'm sure you've all experienced a little bit of this in your own lives. And it just helps us to see that people are people are people. And the response of the gospel is the same response to the gospel, the same response to the gospel that's been going on for centuries. And our responsibilities in all of that don't change. So let me give you the big idea. When you preach a sermon, when I preach, I I hope that you also are learning to preach or articulate or teach truth better. So I like to start generally with a big idea, sometimes called the proposition, the central idea, the kernel of the sermon, the nail that you're going to pound throughout the rest of the sermon. So the big idea is that the gospel has always infuriated some and instructed others in life-giving truth. It's always infuriated some, and it's instructed others in life-giving truth. It is, by nature, a divisive message. It separates wheat from chaff. It separates sheep from goat. It separates believers from unbelievers, however you want to put it. And, of course, those that become sheep, those that become wheat, those that become believers, it's all undergirded by God's grace. That's not evident in this particular text, but we read about that theology all through the Pauline epistles, that it's all undergirded by grace. Different degrees, but this is what we're going to see again in Acts 17, which we've seen elsewhere. So let's explore a couple more of Paul's missionary adventures and see what we can learn. We're going to start with his visit to Thessalonica. If you've ever read the book of 1 Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians, the reason why there was a church in Thessalonica to later write those letters too was because of what happens in Acts 17. So this is the founding of the church in Thessalonica. Acts 17, let's start with verse one. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So again, that's a pattern. It's comes up time and time again in Acts. And Paul went in, as was his custom, which we've already noticed. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Now, presumably his sermon was a lot longer than that. And he preached it on three separate Sabbaths. And we don't know what texts he was referring to, but he was clearly preaching from the Bible, probably Isaiahic texts like Isaiah 53, or maybe he was preaching from Micah 5. He was reminding these Jews, who supposedly, at least in theory, had a high view of Scripture, that all of the prophecies and predictions that were made about the Messiah could only aptly be fulfilled by Christ, that Christ was the only one that actually fulfilled those prophecies. So there's a few lessons we can learn here from the journey of these early evangelists. And here's the first one. Learn your Bible so that you can defend the faith. It's fine to use cosmological arguments and mathematical arguments of probability to point toward God. We call that rational evidentialism, rational evidential apologetics. But in and of itself, no matter how rational you are with people, no matter how many evidences you present to people, 
We must presuppose, based upon the word of God, that the human heart is not sinful merely because it lacks evidences. But rather, the human heart is sinful because it is depraved. It does not understand. It does not seek after God. So those apologetic seminars that you might go to, which will introduce you to all sorts of scientific and interesting logical reasons for the existence of God, they they have a, a place. But it's better to presuppose. We call this presuppositional apologetics. The existence of God and the authority of God's word. And when you preach the authority of God's word, you're not just preaching that which is true, but you're preaching using the sword of the spirit of God, that God can take his word and he can penetrate penetrate through our depravity, through our spiritual blindness. He can bring conviction and he can actually bring about conversion. So Paul was doing what we would call apologetic preaching. You might think, well, that sounds a little different than what Harvest is about because I know you're about unapologetic preaching. Well, that's not the kind of apologetic preaching we're talking about. There's two ways of using the word apologetic. One would be, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I forgot your name, or I'm sorry I stepped on your toe, or I'm sorry I scratched your car. That's not the kind of preaching that Paul was doing, but his kind of apologetic preaching was from the word apologia. You might recall that in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Paul said, or Peter said, always be prepared to give an answer for the reason for the hope that you have, but do so with gentleness and respect. So there's some instruction there about what content we're, we're to communicate, and there's some instruction there about our demeanor when we're communicating that content. But the word there is apologia, and from that we get apologetics. So apologetics is when we're defending the Christian faith against other truth claims, when we're defending it against lies. So if you're going to grow as a Christian, there's three areas you want to be growing in. You want to be growing in your theological knowledge, your knowledge of the content of Scripture. You also want to be growing in your ethical knowledge, your knowledge of the application of Scripture. And you want to be growing in your apologetic knowledge, your ability to defend Scripture against alternative truth claims. And these three prongs to the Christian life, form a three-legged stool that holds us up through life. We call it the three-legged stool of the Christian faith when we're teaching on these subjects. So Paul was a consummate apologist in the first Peter 3.15 sense of the word. He's defending, and guess what his source material is? The Old Testament. The Old Testament. Keep in mind there was no Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. That, that wasn't written yet. So he wasn't using the New Testament. He was using the, what we call now the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, to actually teach Christian theology. Isn't that interesting? Because you know what? Many Christians don't read the Old Testament. They think, ah, oh, that's old. Even the way they say it, that's the Old Testament. It's like, that's irrelevant. I just read the New Testament. Well, guess what? Every sermon that was preached that we read about in Acts was preached based upon the Old Testament because the New Testament wasn't written yet. So the Bible is actually one unified whole. And when we properly preach the Old Testament, we find Christ. 
And the claims of Christ are validated based upon his fulfillment of Old Testament, what we now call Old Testament or Hebrew Bible passages. His approach is then to go to these Jews that supposedly hold a high view of the Hebrew Bible and to prove based upon the Old Testament that Christ alone qualifies as the Messiah that the prophets had spoken about for centuries. Now, about 25 years ago, I was asked to write an article, maybe two, I can't exactly recall, an article or two for this book. And this book is entitled, as you can see, it kind of has a long, fancy name, The Encyclopedia of Messianic Candidates and Movements in Judaism, Samaritanism, and Islam. So the uh, compiler of this book, I submitted an article, lots of other people submitted articles, and I don't have a picture of it from the side, but it is a good one inch thick. You know how thin paper is, so to have a one inch thick book, you gotta have a lot of pages. And if you were to get this book and you were to open it up, you would find page after page after page after page of write-ups on individuals from the Maccabean period, the intertestamental period and before, right up to the advent of Islam and then into the 7th and 8th century of various hundreds of individuals in the Abrahamic religions that either claimed to be the Messiah or were thought of by other people as Messiah. So Jesus isn't the only one to come on the scene and say, I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people throughout human history have either claimed to be the Messiah, the anointed one, or were identified as one by one of their followers. But you know what the critical distinction is between Christ and every single name that appears in that book except for his? Number one, he's the only one that was born of a virgin. He's the only one who is divine in nature that skipped original sins, presence in our lives, born not of a human father, of a human mother, therefore being fully human, but not inheriting Adam's sin, which is passed on father to child, father to child, father to child, generation after generation. He skipped the curse of Adam's sin in his own life. Secondly, he's the only one that didn't stay in the grave. He was resurrected from the grave and was seen by over 500 people, not just his buddies, but also antagonists. And for that reason and many other reasons, Jesus alone out of all these individuals throughout history that have claimed messianic status is the true and living Messiah and savior of the world. And this is fundamental, you know, to the Christian faith. It's not a sidebar issue. It's not a footnote. This is at the heart of the Christian faith, the identity and mission of Christ. If you don't have a resurrected Christ, Christianity dies in the manger. If you don't have a virgin-born Christ, Christianity dies in the manger. But we have both of those. We have a resurrected Christ and we have a virgin-born Christ. So Paul would have discussed these kinds of things with his Jewish listeners in the first century. And by God's grace, some of them, the smart ones, really the ones that are impacted by God's grace, were convinced of this. Verse four, and some of these were persuaded. I want you to keep this in mind that the word persuasion is a mind word. 
It's an intellectual word. Keep this in mind because it's gonna, we're, we're going to need to contrast this response to a, a, a response that's not a mind response later on in this same chapter. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. In Acts, we see God honoring the commission, which was given in Matthew 28. God's to go into the world. It wasn't a make work project. It was actually part of his plan. Go into the world and preach the gospel. And then in Acts, we see, oh, actually God is empowering his people to bear fruit from his commission. So we see Jews coming to Christ. We have Greeks coming to Christ, which is sort of a catch-all term for people of other ethnicities at the time. And even some women of high social standing came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the gospel is operational in the world. People are coming to faith from a whole variety of backgrounds, and we're thankful for that. Some of them, however, weren't so happy. And while the first group and another group will meet in Berea, while their response was what we could call exegetical, logical, rational, they looked at the Bible, they looked at Christ, they looked at the Bible, they looked at Christ, they're like, yeah, he measures up. This, this makes sense to us. What the word of God says is clearly being fulfilled in Christ. It was a rational response, but the opponents don't respond rationally. They respond emotionally. Now, the reason why we know they responded emotionally is because the Bible gives us a motive word in the next verse. But the Jews were jealous. Jealousy is not a rational word. It's not on par with persuasion. It's not on par with debate. It's not on par with good exegesis. It's an emotional word, and it's a bad emotion. It's a sinful emotion. But the Jews were jealous, and then they just start breaking all sorts of their own laws and taking some wicked men of the rabble. So instead of defending themselves intellectually, saying, actually, uh, you misunderstood that text. We have a reason why Jesus doesn't qualify. Let's have a rational debate about this. No, no, no. They, they get to resort to underhanded means to attack these Christian missionaries. So they actually find men of ill repute and bring them in. They form a mob. They set the city in an uproar. And then they resort to violence and they attack the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. By the way, Jason probably was still a Jew. Many Jews who were called Joshua in Israel, when they would transplant to Gentile territories, would adopt Greek names. And Jason is the Greek equivalent to Joshua, which is the, the Hebrew equivalent to, to Jason. So he, they, he, this man is dragged out of his home. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities saying, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them and they're all acting. Now, before you go any further, keep in mind, they're motivated by jealousy, which is a sin. They are participating in acts of violence against innocent people, which is a sin. They're associating with known rabble-rousers, which is a sin, in order to win what? A biblical argument? Like, think of how nonsensical and ironic this is. But then they, they totally cross the line when they say, 
They're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, there's two ways to look at this. On one hand, that's diminishing Jesus' kingship. But you know what it's also doing? It's elevating Caesar as supreme. Now, fundamental to Judaism is monotheism. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema, behold, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You can't be a Jew and be a polytheist. Well, these supposed monotheists who in their mind probably would have still thought of themselves as monotheists were clearly on a practical level polytheists because they were using among their other despicable acts this claim that Caesar was the true king to try to beat their Christian opponents. Think of the irony there. They basically start breaking all of God's laws, not because there's any logic to it, not because Paul preached a terrible sermon, not because he misunderstood a text, not because he poorly exegeted Isaiah 53, but because of human sinfulness. Before you're too hard on them, know this, that's us. Apart from the regenerative work of Jesus Christ. When people reject Christianity, it's not because it's a logical rejection of Christianity. It's because it's not because we don't have history on our side. It's not because we don't have evidence on our side. It's not because we don't have a virgin-born Messiah on our side or a resurrected Savior on our side. It's because we don't want to be ruled. We don't want to submit. We don't want to admit how feeble and frail we are. Well, in order to combat these lies, those of us that have come to faith in Jesus Christ and been transformed need to know our Bibles. And that doesn't just start with the New Testament. It also means we need to know the messianic prophecies of the old covenant scriptures. Second takeaway, prepare yourself for persecution. It's normal. Remember I talked about patterns, people repeating them, actions be repeating themselves throughout history. Persecution is as old as the hills against the people of God. These men are motivated by jealousy. There's no rationality to their response. They resort to violence. They betray their own beliefs. And they have a, a, an effect on the city. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. You know what a typical tactic of the tyrant is? It has no logical footing to their opposition to Christian people is. You know what that is? I know it's a bit of a run-on sentence. But one of the tactics that tyrants resort to in order to crush Christianity, in order to crush dissent, is financial penalties. And it's actually very, very effective. You can manipulate people very easily by using financial penalties. And time and time again, you know, this is, this is what the Marxists did in Eastern Europe. They confiscate property, threaten people. This is what the Nazis did when they were rising in Germany. No matter what you think about the pandemic, it was an immoral response to freeze the assets of peaceful protesters, to threaten people with fines that were 10 and 20 and 100 times higher 
than what you'd get if you broke into someone's house. And why do they do this? Because finances are a very quick and easy way of twisting someone's arm behind their back and making them say uncle because it hurts. And here, these early Christians are financially penalized, not for any rational reason, but because these evil Jewish opponents hated them and they had power. And when you have power, what do you do? You often, if you're not under Christ, if it's not under Christ, you abuse power. So they solicit financial penalties from people in order to manipulate their behavior. So here's a piece of advice for all of us because society doesn't seem to be going toward Christ, best as I can tell, not anytime soon. There's a rise of anti-Christian sentiment in our culture. You'd probably be wise to resolve in your heart now that come hell or high water, you are not going to be manipulated when it comes to your religious conscience with finances. That you'll give your life, your wife, your property, and your bank account to stand firm for the things you actually believe are true. And it's always better to make that resolve in your heart in advance because it's hard enough to live it out in the moment, but if you haven't even made the, the, the resolve in advance, or if you think, well, that's far-fetched, Pastor Aaron, that's not going to happen. We got all sorts of protections. You're misreading the circumstances. Things are going to be fine. Well, have at it if that's your view. But I'm 100% convinced you're wrong. Because if you look at what's going on in culture, increasingly, the pressure's turned up. Now, one of the things about being on the older side of things Apparently, I look older than I actually am. But I do remember the 1970s and the 1980s. Now, some of you, by the looks of you, can probably remember the 1940s or the 1930s. But I can remember the 1970s and the 1980s and being in a public school and having non-Christian friends. And our persecution, there was also a little bit of persecution, but we didn't really use that word. It was like, <laughs> you're a Christian. It was like that kind of stuff. Or a little bit of mockery, a few subtle jabs, but we still prayed the Lord's Prayer in school. My grade five teacher, who was not a Christian, read us the Bible in school, in Ontario, in grade five. That would never happen today. Well, it's a very different world. When you compare 1970s, early 80s to now, it's very, very different. You want to go teach at the university in the biological faculty and you let them know you're a theist. You will never get hired. Never get hired. If you're in positions of government office and you won't fly, fly the sodomite flag, good luck keeping your job. If you won't go to CRT training, good luck keeping your job. Like, it's, it's pretty obvious. You got to have your head very deeply buried in a hole in the ground to not look around you and say, this culture, this country is very, very anti-Christian. And it starts with verbal assaults. It starts with shuttering Christians from academic establishments and political establishments. Then it's followed, study history by financial penalties. And eventually, subtly, things start to become outlawed and you're pushed out. 
So history repeats itself, different packages. It tends to sneak up on people because people always think it's going to happen the same way it happened in a previous generation. It's always packaged a little bit differently. But here's the thing. Whether there are some highs for us to look forward to and then some lows and some more highs, we would all be wise people to at least prepare ourselves, to at least prepare ourselves in our minds by answering questions like, what, where is my line in the sand? What am I actually prepared to give up for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ? No, from the past, you're like, you know what? I think I probably messed it up at this point and this point and this point. Repent. Tomorrow's a new day. Today's a new day. And sacrifice for Christ as he calls you to do. Now, the good news is that in spite of the persecution, guess what happened? A church was planted in Thessalonica. And we know this because we have 1 Thessalonians and we have 2 Thessalonians in the corpus of scripture. So God planted a church there by his grace. Well, the situation was so vulnerable and volatile that there was no reasonable hope of them continuing public ministry there. And sometimes that's a reality. If you're talking to eight people and they're all screaming in your face, it's probably time to move on. So they eventually leave town. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue, as was their custom. They always go to the Jewish synagogue first. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So we do see here various amounts of fruit being born. Again, this passage isn't getting into necessarily a theology of the human heart and the human will. Again, you got to spend some time in Romans or Ephesians for that. So we're not going to say these people are just innately better. We know behind the scenes God would have been working, but the response is markedly different. And in some situations, God wants to bear greater fruit than he does in other places because of his sovereign will. We read about that in chapter 16 when Paul and Silas were going to go to this town and God's like, I don't want you going there, but we're going to go to this town. I don't want you going there. I want you down in Macedonia. So God is not always, might rock your boat a little bit, equally interested in every single place in history or in every single person at all points in time. Sometimes God brings revival. Sometimes God brings judgment. Sometimes cultures turn to Christ en masse. Sometimes cultures turn away from Christ. And it's not because God's a weakling, but God is working out his plan in accordance with his sovereign will. Now, in terms of application, you'll notice here that one of the noble activities of these noble people in Berea is that they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. So we too should engage in personal Bible study. Little did these Bereans know that 2,000 years later, if you did a Google search, you could identify tens of thousands of churches that now have the name Berean in their name. Berean Baptist Church, Berean Bible Church. They're all, they're all over North America. And it's because when people think of the Bereans, they think of them in a positive way. The interesting thing is they weren't yet likely fully converted. They were pre-Christian in this sense. They were studying and examining eagerly the claims that the evangelists had made to see 
if these things were so. Now, immediately then, they were converted. They became genuine, bona fide Christians. But in, in, when, they're, when they're called Bereans here and they're studying the word of God, it's doubtful that they are yet converted. But they're in the process of being converted. And once again, what were they studying? If you want to be a Berean, what do you need to study? Oh, I just study Romans. I, I like John. Just read John. It's got everything in it. I like 1 John. A lot about love in that book. No, they were studying the Old Testament. So a true Berean is as familiar with Isaiah as he is with Romans. A true Berean is as familiar with Leviticus as he is with 1 Timothy. The whole of the word of God, all 66 books of the word of God should be our constant source of study because it's a unified book. I understand there's covenantal differences. I understand there's Christ at the divide between the old covenant and the new. But the Bible, in terms of being the word of God, exposing us to the whole of God's counsel is always beneficial for us to study. And so we cannot fall into the trap of simply being New Testament-only Christians, but rather familiarize ourselves and preach from the whole of God's word. So perhaps a good applicational question for us to ask would be, do I study the word of God like the Bereans do? Like, I'm a Christian now. I'm not in the process of figuring out I'm a Christian. So, do I study the word of God daily? Did you see that word in the text? They examine the scriptures daily. How often? Every single day. How many of you read the word of God every single day? I think, well, I've tried, but I, I have trouble getting into the habit. I've tried, but I, I forget. Well, let me, let me maybe uh, challenge you and encourage you at the same time. Each of us has already proven that we have the capacity to do things on a daily basis. You ever had a time in your life where you're sitting there, you're thinking, you know what? I don't think I've eaten for a month. No, every single day, unless you're fasting, you eat and you drink. You don't forget that. Because you know you feel it. You know you need it. You're in tune to your physical appetites. And so you get up and you drink and you eat. And you do that three or maybe four times a day. So right there, we have the capacity to do the same thing every single day for our entire lives. Have you ever had an experience where you're at work or maybe you're at school and your buddy comes up and taps you on the shoulder and says, I think you forgot something. What? You forgot your clothing. No, you, you always, no matter how late, I'm late for work, you still get dressed. I got all kinds of appointments. Nobody leaves the house naked. Every single day, you know, I got to get dressed or there's consequences to that. You never forget. And we could point to many other things. We, we don't forget to breathe in and we don't forget to breathe out. So we, there's already many things in our lives that we do on a daily, habitual basis. So it's not impossible to get to a point in your life where you're reading the word of God every single day. And you should be doing that. It brings you life. It feeds your soul. It doesn't mean you need to carve out an entire two-hour block. I know there's other responsibilities in life. But in some way, shape, or form, your eyes should be on the Bible every 
single day, not six days a week, not five days a week, not 28 days of the month, 365 and one quarter days a year, you and I need to be reading the word of God. The Bereans did it as pre-Christians in the process of being converted. There's no reason for us not to be able to do it. And we have so many Bible tools. We now have a completed canon of scripture. We have not 39 books. We have 66 books. We see the whole picture now. So let's make sure we commit ourselves to being people of the word of God. Now, of course, the crazies from Thessalonica decided that they were going to continue to pursue Paul and Silas and Timothy right down to Berea. I'm always interested in Bible geography. And when I went to Israel probably 13 years ago now, it's, it's pretty cool to be able to visit places you've preached about. And one of the things that surprised me is how close things were. When I read and I'm, oh, Jesus walked from here to there. I'm like, ah, I can picture that in my head. That's not very far. I can picture the topography and it's, it kind of brings the Bible to life. But when, when, once we get up into Asia Minor, we read about the, the missionary journeys of Paul. I mean, there's some, some pretty big distances here to travel. So I looked this up and the distance from Thessalonica to Berea is between 75 and 85 kilometers. So let's suppose that um, roughly that's the distance between we're, where we're at and Chatham. Now we have the 401. And thank God, we should all add this to our prayer list, thanking God for this, that the, the speed limit is now 110, right up to Tilbury, right? Let's just pray that they raise it to 120 the whole way, right? It's nice to have that highway. You can just zoom along. You can get there in 40 minutes, an hour. Of course, if you're police officers in the room, I never speed. Okay, I've just publicly lied. Maybe a little bit. But we can get to these places, 75, 80 kilometers, no big deal. But suppose I were to say, hey, I want you to pop over to uh, Chatham to pick something up for me, and you got to walk. You'd have to have a bit of a motivator, right? Financial motivator or some real, maybe you just really like walking. Most people don't like walking. You go to the mall, Devonshire Mall. You see it all the time. People driving around in their car looking for the closest parking space to the door. I don't want to walk that extra 50 feet. But then when I find that close space, I'm going to go into the mall and I'm going to walk like miles around and around and around and around the mall looking for my favorite shoe store or whatever. We're lazy. We don't like to walk. We don't like to walk. These guys were so hell-bent on crushing and persecuting Christians that they would have walked 80 kilometers just to, because they had a grudge against them. Well, we don't need to make it easy for persecutors. But when the Jews from Thessalonica, Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowd. It's like, guys, don't you have something better to do? Like, talk about a bunch of losers. But they're literally following Paul and, and Silas and Timothy around Asia Minor, trying to make their lives difficult, which again demonstrates the spirit. There's no logic to it. It doesn't make sense to spend your time doing that. It's a spiritual warfare. It's a spiritual warfare. And when the people of God throughout history are often pursued and attacked, it's not because there's any logic to it. It's a spiritual warfare. 
Then their brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So they split company for a period of time. Silas and Timothy continued to minister in Berea. Paul jets off to Athens. Now the cool thing is God then uses Paul in Athens to debate and to win more people to Christ. Earlier, we talked briefly about apologetics. Paul did good apologetics in Athens. He found a statue, said, hey, I noticed there's a God here. You got lots of gods. One doesn't have a name on it. Let me tell you about who the unknown God is. And he used that cultural artifact as a springboard into the gospel. Good apologists, good evangelists do that. They look for ways to springboard from one inert conversation into a spiritually charged gospel-centered conversation. So here's the thing. You might think, well, was Paul a coward? I mean, he's in Thessalonica. The heat's turned up, so he takes off to Berea. He's in Berea. The heat's turned up, so he takes off to Athens. Well, the reality is sometimes you have to get out of Dodge. But many people today want to get out of Dodge, not for the reasons that Paul wanted to get out of Dodge. Like, I want to get out of Dodge. It's too difficult being a Christian. So I'm going to, I'm going to move to an era where it's easy to be a Christian. I'm going, to, I'm going to build a cabin in the northern forests of Alaska and just live off the grid. And that way I can read my Bible every day. It's like the monastics of the second, the third century. They just moved into the hills and cloistered themselves down and performed various daily rituals, reading and praying, but didn't influence the world around them. Paul never did that. When he had to retreat, he always retreated to a place where he could do more ministry, where he could win more people to Christ. Like some audiences are impossible to reach. And Paul would exercise discernment. He would determine through the leading of the Holy Spirit when it was time to get out of Dodge. But he never got out of Dodge just so things could be easier, but so that he could continue his mission to be faithful to Christ. I don't know if anyone here is a military veteran, but you've probably watched some war movies, I would assume. And you know that in war, when you're out in a battlefield, let's say you got a hundred guys or a thousand guys and you're overwhelmed with a force 10 times the size and you're taking casualties left, right, and center, you're not a coward when you say, guys, let's sound the retreat. Let's live to fight another day. And so you, you get off the battlefield and you, and you regroup and other times you assess the situation. You're like, yeah, we can do this. And you charge the enemy and you, and you win the battle. It's not about being a coward. It's about discernment. It's about strategy. And I think that's what Paul's mindset was like. There were times when fruit had been born, but the intensity, the persecution had been turned up so high, they had to relocate for a period of time. Of course, the neat thing about Paul is he'd often circle back to these towns at a later date and continue preaching and ministering to the churches that he'd planted there. So there's nothing wrong with, with discernment, but there is something wrong when we retreat from persecution simply because we want life to be easy. That's a problem. That's a problem. If it's just about comfort, gaining comfort, regaining comfort, we may disqualify ourselves in the realm of faithfulness to the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what have we learned from this passage? Well, we've learned that success in ministry doesn't imply that harassment's going to stop. It often just continues. Harassment pursued them from 
Thessalonica to Berea, and it would just continue to be part and parcel of Paul's ministry. So, brothers and sisters, there's, it's a pipe dream if we think that we're ever going to get to a point where we're persecution-free. And it's, it's wrong to conclude if we're persecuted that God must have abandoned us. Persecution keeps us sharp. Persecution keeps us on our toes. Persecution tests us. And in that respect, it can be a glorious thing. God also has fields that are white into harvest and fields that aren't so white into harvest. And so sometimes we may experience greater eagerness, eager listeners, and other times we might experience people who falsely accuse us or who hate us or who want to run us out of town. And we have to determine how are we going to respond in those situations? And then finally, let's continue to grow in our ability to defend the faith, to be good apologists for Christ. Let's grow in our commitment to reading and studying the word of God on a daily basis. And let's resolve in our heart that no matter what happens in life, we will not surrender one inch of God's creation or our stewardship or our lives to those that would oppose the things of God. But by God's strength and God's grace, may we stand firm to the end. 